Wow, there's some energy in the room this morning. The sun is just just energizing us. I love it. Good morning, TLC. Hey, I want to ask you guys uh, to share with the person next to you, uh, the person you came with, or if you're online this morning with the people uh, that are uh, around you or driving in the car with you or whatever, or if you're online and you'd be so bold, you can put it in the chat. Uh, I want you to share something that you are just slightly above average at, okay? Dare I say it, maybe even good at, okay? This is your chance to brag on yourself a little this morning, all right? Look to the person next to you, just share something that you're slightly above average at, maybe even good at. All right, all right. Stop bragging on yourself. Stop bragging on yourself. No. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I told you to. Hey, so one of the things uh, that some people know about me, some people don't, uh, is growing up in middle school, high school, and even college, I ran uh, cross country and track. Now, I'm not going to kid you, all right? I was just a slightly above average runner, okay? On my best days, I was a good runner, nothing more, okay? And any sliver of slightly above averageness that I possessed was mostly due to the credit of one of my teammates. Uh, his name was Jason. I want to introduce you guys to Jason. This is Jason. This is him winning some race. Who knows? Uh, and uh, Jason was, Jason Chris was his name. Jason was the second best runner in the state of Indiana, okay, when I was in high school. Now, in high school, we don't, or in Indiana, we don't have the class business. So it's just second means second, all right? So he was second in the state of Indiana. And he was second only to a guy by the name of Futsum Zinazalase. All right, and Futsum Zinazalase was one of the best runners in like the history of high school running at the time. Which, by the way, if your name is Futsum Zinazalase, you better be one of the best runners, right? Like, what a name. Okay, Jason was second only to him. Jason in high school, he could run 3,200 meters, that's two miles, in eight minutes, eight minutes and 58 seconds, okay? Now, that was in high school he was doing that. That's, for you math majors out there, that's 429 pace, like two miles in a row, 8.58, okay? Jason was fast. Okay. Now he was one of my teammates and I had the luxury of being on some relays with Jason. So one, uh, one of the relays I was on was a, a DMR relay. It uh, stands for distance medley relay. Okay. So the DMR, the lead leg, they run 1200 meters. That's three laps. And then they hand it off to someone who just runs one lap. They run 400 meters. Then they hand it off to the third leg who runs 800 meters. That's two laps. And then that third leg hands it off to the anchor leg. They run the longest. They run a full mile. They run four laps. And I'll never forget, uh, we were in the state championships, we were in the, the DMR, and I was running the, the lead leg, and Jason was running the anchor, because he's the fast one, and the gun goes off, and I do my best, I run 1,200 meters, and I hand the baton off, and we're in like 10th or 11th place, okay? Like I said, slightly above average, that's all I can give, okay? So 10th or 11th, and uh, we, I hand the baton off, and then the second and third leg, there's not usually a lot of change of position, just because it's just a short distance, hard to gain, lose traction. So when we hand the baton off to Jason, uh, and... We're, we're in like 10th or 11th place, all right? And Jason gets a baton, and he runs his mile. He runs his four laps. And when he crosses the finish line, we're in third place, baby. We're in third place, all thanks to Jason's 409 mile. See, when this is us, this is a picture of our relay with our medals. This is our third place medal. Uh, we each have one around our neck, but really Jason should have all four around his neck. But he was nice enough to let, give us each one and say, here you go, guys. You see, when Jason was on your side, you felt like anything was possible. 
And I spent my whole high school career practically just chasing this guy at practice, like literally chasing him, like actually chasing him. And it turned me into a half-decent runner. There's a professional runner who has had the same sort of effect just on the entire American uh, women's side of distance running. Her name is Shalane Flanagan. Some of you guys may have heard of Shalane Flanagan. She, is, uh, she was an incredible runner, I mean, on, on her own. I mean, she won the New York City Marathon, one of the first American women to do that in like 30 or 40 years. But her legacy, she retired recently, and her legacy really is the effect, the impact that she had on the others around her. And I don't mean like in some like nice way, uh, although she's a nice person. I mean like people literally got faster when they trained with her, okay? Like, so just to set, you know, to give you some perspective, in the year 2000, uh, American women's distance running was kind of a lonely, unsuccessful venture. Only one woman even uh, was able to qualify for the Olympic marathon in the year 2000. And when Shalane entered the scene around the year 2009, well, that just hasn't been an issue anymore for the American women. You see American distance running on the women's side is more prominent, more successful, faster than ever. And a lot of people give credit to Shalane Flanagan for that. You see, every single woman that has trained with Shalane Flanagan has qualified for the Olympics. Every single woman, over 10 women have trained with her. And before training with her, had not. After training with her, have qualified for the Olympics. It's been deemed the Shalane effect. Articles have been written, there's publicity around the Shalane effect. You see, when you train with Shalane, things change. Her presence changes things. We're in this new series called Gospel, right? And we've spent the last few weeks just engaging with this word gospel, what it means, what it means for us as Christians. And we've said from the get-go each week so far, we've said that the gospel of Jesus is the story of God from start to finish. And so last week, Dr. Burge kind of walked us through this six circles thing, right? To help us imagine what, what is God's story from start to finish, right? And so we saw these six circles, and Dr. Burge walked us through the first two of these circles. So on the far left, we've got this complete circle. And Dr. Burge said, this represents creation. And creation was good. God created everything, and it was perfect. It was how God intended it to be. That's this first circle. And then we talked about this second circle on that, on that diagram. Dr. Burge walked us through. And that second circle is with the one with the X in the middle. And that X in the middle, Dr. Burge said, it represents the way that sin has entered the world. And there is death, there's destruction, there's brokenness, there's heartache because things are not the way that they were created to be. Dr. Burge even showed us some images to kind of jog our memory. And, and we'll engage with those images again later this morning. And so because of this destruction, because of this sin, because of this second circle, Dr. Burge said we are in need of hope. Right? We are in need, what he said, is a gospel. And a gospel is just a, a narrative of hope in the world. And because of this second circle, there's something not right with the world, the way that we treat each other, the way that we treat our environment. There's something not right, and, there's, and it's broken in need of fixing. There's disorder that needs to be ordered. Enter this morning. Enter this third circle represented by an arrow pointing down, which represents Jesus' arrival onto the scene. This morning is Palm Sunday, the day that we as a global church recognize Jesus' arrival. It's like Jesus, it's like coronation day in Frozen. It's Anna's coronation day, right? This is Jesus' arrival. You didn't think I'd, I'd connect Anna and Jesus, did you? 
Welcome to church, all right? So Jesus, this is, this is Palm Sunday, enter Jesus. And Jesus, like Shalane Flanagan, Jesus changes things, all right? It's not the Shalane effect, it's the Jesus effect. How's that for corny, huh? All right, it's the Jesus effect. Jesus comes onto the scene and changes things. And he's saying things like hope is here, redemption is here. He's saying things like he's going to fix what's broken. He's going to order what's been disordered. He's saying the kingdom of God is here. This is what Torin taught on the first week. We walked through the book of Mark and Jesus very clearly summarized his message of hope. His message of hope, his gospel was summarized clearly in Mark chapter 1 verse 15. The kingdom of God is here. Everybody say that with me. The kingdom of God is here. One more time. The kingdom of God is here. That was Jesus' gospel message. This was his message of hope. And this morning, we're going to look at a different uh, way of saying that, summarizing that very simple message in the book of Luke. So if you guys will turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 4, we're going to read verse 18 to 21. And as you do that, I just want to set the scene. The book of Luke is just a different version of Jesus' life and ministry, different than the book of Mark. And in the book of Luke, in chapter 4, what we're going to be reading this morning, this is the start of Jesus' public ministry. All right, this is the start of his public ministry, and this all takes place on, at a synagogue on the day of a, of a Sabbath day service. Now, Sabbath day service was just a gathering on the Sabbath, happened each week, a large gathering of people in the synagogue. There was a recitation of different prayers and blessings, and, and then a scripture was read from the Torah, and then the prophets, and then a speaker would come up and sort of uh, educate and elaborate and connect the passages together. And in the middle of this Sabbath day service, Jesus stands up, And he reads from the prophet Isaiah, and he makes a bold claim. We're going to read this morning, Luke chapter 7, this is, uh, or sorry, Luke chapter 4, this is verses 18 to 21. It says this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then it says he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and he walked down from the stage and he sat down and it says that all the eyes in the synagogue were fixed on him and he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. (laughs) Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus reads from the prophet Isaiah, this part in Isaiah, that what what it's doing is it's describing the kingdom of God. It's describing God's rule and reign. It's describing what's broken being fixed, what's disordered being ordered. It's describing redemption. And Jesus says, today, because I have arrived, the kingdom of God is here. Hope is here. Redemption is here. Which is great news, right? (laughs) This is awesome, right? But if you're like me, you want to backtrack a little bit and say, whoa, 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 whoa. What about this whole second circle business? Like, what about the images that Dr. Bird showed us last week? What about destruction? And what about injustice? And what about war? Where is redemption? Where is the kingdom of God? And lucky for us, we're not the only ones to ask such a question. 
In fact, Jesus had to answer questions just like this in the book of Luke, in his time, in his place. And one of the questions came from a, a person that we might not expect, a guy by the name of John the Baptist. You might know the name John the Baptist. John the Baptist was one of the most faithful and fiery servants in all of the Bible. Like, they would never do this, but if the Associated Press or Time Magazine or something put out a list of, like, the ten most influential prophets in the Bible, like, John the Baptist would be numero uno, all right? Like, John the Baptist came before Jesus, proclaiming that, that the Messiah was on his way, that the kingdom of God was at hand, that people needed to be repent, or repent and be baptized. And in Luke chapter 3, just before Jesus begins his ministry, John the Baptist sees Jesus. And when he sees Jesus, he knows right away, behold, this is the Lamb of God who comes to take the sin away from the world. John the Baptist knew right away Jesus was the Messiah. Jesus was the one who was going to bring hope, who was going to bring redemption. The kingdom of God was here. John the Baptist baptized Jesus. He baptized Jesus. John the Baptist was like that dude, all right? But things didn't turn out for John the way that he thought that they might. In fact, just a few chapters after baptizing Jesus, in Luke chapter 7, John the Baptist finds himself in a prison cell, waiting for the kingdom of God, waiting for God's rule and reign to fix what's been broken, to bring order to what's been disordered. And in his waiting, in his frustration, he begins to doubt. He begins to question. He begins to wonder to himself, maybe I got this whole Jesus thing wrong. Maybe Jesus isn't who he says that he is. Maybe Jesus isn't the gospel. Maybe Jesus isn't the hope for the world. Because I am sitting in a prison cell of a king who I thought would be overthrown by now for serving the very man that I thought would save me. And so he's asking the question to Jesus, Jesus, are you the one or should we look for another? John the Baptist is stuck in his prison cell. He gathers the messengers. He can't go anywhere. So he gathers some messengers and he sends them to Jesus. And in Luke chapter 7, we read this. It says that when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist, they come to Jesus. It says, they, John the Baptist has sent us to you, to Jesus, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? John the Baptist is asking Jesus, Jesus, are you the one? Are you the Messiah? Are you the one who's going to say what you said you're going to do? Or should we look for another? John is tired. John is frustrated. John is confused. He's in the prison cell of a king who thought Jesus, of the throne that he thought Jesus would now be in. And his life is wasting away in a prison cell. And he's asking the question, Jesus, are you the one? Or should we look for another? And I think many of us this morning find ourselves in a similar spot. Our situations, our circumstances, we're not in a prison cell, but we're asking the question, Jesus, are you really the hope of the world? Jesus, are you really going to fix what's broken? Jesus, are you really going to order what's been disordered? Jesus, are you the one or should we look for another? 
Maybe we find ourselves, we've just lost our job or we've just lost our, our, our friends, whatever it is, and we're, and, we're, and we're angry and we're frustrated and we're saying to Jesus, Jesus, are you the one or should we look for another? Or maybe our, our marriage is on the ropes. Our marriage is on the ropes and counseling's not working. More conversation isn't working. Less conversation isn't working. Nothing seems to be working and we're saying, Jesus, how could the kingdom of God be here? Jesus, are you the one or should we look for another? Or maybe we just lost our third baby in a row. And we are crying out in anger and we're crying out in frustration and we're saying, Jesus, how are you going to fix this? Jesus, are you the one or should we look for another? Or maybe there's some of us, I anticipate, who for a long time have been battling a crippling level of anxiety or depression that every morning when you wake up just seems to wrap its arms around you and no matter what you do, it will not relent, it will not let go and you're saying, how could the kingdom of God be here, Jesus? Are you the one or should we look for another? Check out how Jesus responds to John. He's asked this question, and in Luke chapter 7, in verse 21 and 22, it says this, that in that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight, and he answered them. Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Jesus describes what one of my professors from Fuller Seminary, Joel Green, calls a festival of salvation. A festival of what's broken being fixed. A festival of what's disordered being ordered. A festival of hope and redemption. A festival of salvation. Jesus pulls from all this Old Testament imagery. The lepers are cleansed. The, the dead are raised. The, the poor have good news proclaimed to them. Sound familiar? Sounds like Luke chapter 4, right? See, Jesus insists Jesus is insistent in his response to John the Baptist that the kingdom of God is here. That because Jesus is here, hope is here. Redemption is here. Jesus is going to fix what's broken. Jesus is going to order what's disordered. The kingdom of God is here. You ever get good news and have a hard time believing it? <laughs> like you get the good news and you're like, uh, I don't know, is this real? Or I, I still have some doubts. I still have some questions. I still have some concerns. I remember uh, when uh, my wife Olivia and I, we got our offer accepted on our house that we have now. It's our, our house, our home. It was our 11th offer, by the way. So um, <laughs> no big deal. I'm not mad about it. It's a great time to buy a house. Great time. So much fun. Um, it was our 11th offer. It finally got accepted. And so, understandably so, we were uh, a little hesitant to get excited. Like, we got the good news. The offer had been accepted. And we just felt like, oh, man, like, 
what if something goes wrong? We've got some concerns. We've got some questions. I mean, we must have driven by the house in the first week. We must have driven by that house 10 times, okay? The previous homeowners probably thought, wow, a private investigator driving a very inconspicuous Toyota Prius, red, by the way, bright red, has been hired. Like, what is going on here, right? We've got this good news, but we still had our doubts. We still had our concerns. We still had our questions. And our think, I think that our reaction to Jesus' arrival and what it means is similar. And understandably so. We have our questions. We have our doubts. We have our concerns. Now, lucky for us, John the Baptist wasn't the only one to ask this question. In fact, John the Baptist asks this question. Jesus responds and says, the kingdom of God is here. And there are still people wondering, what are you talking about, Jesus? What do you mean the kingdom of God is here? In fact, 10 chapters later, in Luke chapter 17, there's a group called the Pharisees. And they're wondering the same thing that John the Baptist is wondering. They ask Jesus, Jesus, when is the kingdom of God coming? What they're really asking is, Jesus, is the kingdom of God coming? And Jesus responds to them, and he says this in Luke chapter 7, or sorry, chapter 17. Jesus, Jesus says this in verse 20 uh, and 21. It says this. He says, being asked by the Pharisees when, really if, the kingdom of God would come, he answered them. The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Did you catch it? Jesus says the kingdom of God isn't something that you can point at. It's not an event that you can observe and say, oh, there it is. There's the kingdom of God. No, Jesus says, no, behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. The kingdom of God is in your midst. Some translations say that the kingdom of God is within you. Some say the kingdom of God is among you. This is a hotly debated verse and phrase here by Jesus. What does Jesus mean here? The kingdom of God is in your midst. Well, one thing that we know for sure is that the original Greek very intentionally uses a present tense of the verb. When Jesus says the kingdom of God is in your midst, Jesus is using a present tense of the verb. He wants to make it abundantly clear to the Pharisees that, the, that when he says the kingdom of God is here, he means it's now. It's present. The kingdom of God is here. And he doesn't just mean this in like purely spiritual terms, like, oh, the kingdom of God is, it's in your heart. No, New Testament scholar, world-renowned New Testament scholar, N.T. Wright, clarifies this by saying that this phrase from Jesus is both present and active. This phrase from Jesus is both present and active, that when Jesus says the kingdom of God is in your midst, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you, Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is me. Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is me, and it's active. You need to respond to this. You need to act. You need to grasp. You need to come and follow me. The kingdom of God is something you can touch. It's something that you can experience. You see, if you, you scan the gospel of Luke from front to back, back to front, however you want to do it, you'll very clearly see that the gospel of Luke is convinced that when you see the person of Jesus, you see God's rule on earth. Where Jesus is, there is new creation. 
Where Jesus is, there is salvation. Where Jesus is, evil must flee. Justice is established. There is life. There is blessedness. Sad things become untrue where Jesus is. And on this Palm Sunday, through the arrival of Jesus, good news is here. Hope is here. Redemption is here. The kingdom of God is here. And it's full of justice and peace and forgiveness and genuine life to the full. And through the person and through the presence of Jesus, we can touch it, we can experience it, we can grasp it, we can participate in it. But we've said the first week, we've said the second week, we'll say this week, and we'll keep saying it, the gospel of Jesus is God's story from start to finish. And the story isn't over yet. You see, verses after saying that the kingdom of God is in the midst of you, Jesus says, but first, I must suffer many things and be rejected. Jesus' way of saying, listen, the offer's been accepted, but the deal hasn't been closed, and I'm the only one with the checkbook. And so this morning, we're left with a tension. The tension that Palm Sunday gives us, because a few, in a few chapters, we'll be left to question, just like John the Baptist, just like the Pharisees, as Jesus is arrested and tried and convicted and murdered, will be left asking the question, Jesus, are you the one or shall we look for another? And it's not just in the pages of scripture that we'll be forced to ask that question, it's also in the world around us. In the world around us, we're asking the question, Jesus, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? We're asking the question, where is the kingdom of God? We're asking the question, should we wait for another? The kingdom of God in our midst? Here? Jesus, are you the one, or shall we look for another? And it's not just in the world around us. It's in our lives, right? A lost job, a marriage on the ropes, a lost pregnancy, depression, anxiety, whatever it is, we all have these situations, we have these circumstances that make us wonder, make us question, Jesus, are you really the hope in our world? Jesus, are you really, is your gospel the gospel? Jesus, are you the one or should we look for another? It was like uh, eight months ago, I think, I was working on the house that we had just got. I was painting and my mom called me, and she's crying, which is never a good sign when you're a son and your mom calls you and she's crying. And uh, she asked me to patch my other brothers through, give them a call. And uh, yeah, we, we got news that my dad had been diagnosed with cancer and that there was a lot of things that needed to happen uh, very soon. 
And I'll never forget in that moment, sitting in my garage with my paint scraper in my hand and my phone in the other, thinking to myself, Jesus, are you the one or should I look for another? Are you the hope? Is your gospel the gospel? I want to ask you guys to close your eyes with me this morning. We just saw some images in our world that remind us, that jog our memory of the death, the destruction, the sinfulness, the heartache, the brokenness in our world. And I want to ask you, as you have your eyes closed this morning, to imagine a place or a space that represents that death, that destruction, that brokenness, that heartache for you. For me, it's that standing in the garage, my phone in one, my paint scraper in the other hand. What is it for you? That place or space, just imagine that. And as you keep your eyes closed, I want to just I want to ask you, I want to invite you to hold on to that image. Hold on to that place, hold on to that space this morning and this week. If you feel so led, I'd invite you to share with maybe the people you came with on the way home this morning, to share with your local group. Hold on to that image this morning and this week as we anticipate Easter Sunday. Okay, you can open your eyes. Right after responding to John the Baptist's question, Jesus, after saying the kingdom of God is here and receiving John's questions, receiving John's doubts and concerns, Jesus says, said John the Baptist, there is no one greater than John the Baptist. There is no one greater than John the Baptist. We are in good company asking the question, Jesus, are you the one or should we look for another? I want to assure you of that this morning. Because here's the deal. Palm Sunday is about anticipation and expectation. Easter Sunday is about victory, validation, and restoration. Palm Sunday is about the presence of Jesus and the promises that come with it. But Easter Sunday is about the power of Jesus and Jesus' ability to make good on those promises. Because believe it or not, the very place that you imagined in your head, that space or that place, is the place that God wants you to know that his kingdom is in the midst of you. That through the person, through the presence, through the power of Jesus, God's kingdom is within grasp. Even there, in that place that you've pictured in your head. This is good news. This is gospel. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, It's this Palm Sunday that we recognize your arrival, that 
Thousands of years ago, you entered the city of Jerusalem to an applause full of people's expectations that you had no desire to fulfill. Because Jesus, your kingdom and your kingship are so different, so alternate to to our world and the way that we think of things the brokenness that we operate out of. And Jesus, you want to come in, you want to fix, you want to bring order. And so Jesus, I just pray that this week that that we would be full of anticipation, that we would be full of desire, that we would be full of our need for you and your rescue. Not just in our personal lives, but in our world. Jesus, we need you. We need your presence and we need your power to come and to save us, to come and to rescue us. And so, Spirit of God, I'm praying powerfully in the name of Jesus that you would move in power in the life of our church. That so many of these people's images that they have in their mind, that you would begin through, through your power and your presence, that you would begin to fix what's broken. You would begin to bring order to what's disordered. And not like you're going to fix all of the problems, but Jesus, you're going to reveal yourself as the gospel, as the hope in the world. And so I just pray that over our church. I pray that over this week. I pray that over this Easter Sunday. Jesus, come. Come, Lord Jesus, come. It's in your name that we pray. It's in your name that we gather to you. Be the hope, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen.